You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, hello again, friends of Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast. Good to have you with us here. I guess uh, we're assuming they're friends. Maybe it's enemies that are listening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to assume friends. Okay. Glass right. half full kind of guy, you know? Mm. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe some frenemies. Probably have mm. some of those, I bet. Oh, I bet. Abram Creek, hello. How Hi. you guys doing? Hi. Good. Doing great. And that's good to hear. I'm doing great because our good friend Lee Fields is with us. Hi, Lee. Hi. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Lovely to be here. And this so is your third time on Fathoms. Is that right? I think so. I, I consider myself a friend a friend of the pod. <laughs> yes. Yes. You would fit into that category. Indeed. <laughs> That's like super friend status. <gasps> at least. Yeah. So, yeah. We'll have to create a whole new category for you. Lee. A pantheon. <laughs> what it, what is it on uh, SNL when you're featured like five times you get a jacket or something? I don't I forget what it Ooh. is. Something I'll do you? Waiting for the merch. <laughs> Us too. Us too. We've been we've been talking about merch well for years now. But that's I'm any listeners out there, please if you want merch, let us know. I am a big believer in not making things that people will never buy and never use. <laughs> Hence why I don't have copies of my album in physical form. Because <laughs> you're buying something that you're never going to use and I'm spending something, spending money on something that I'm that you're not going to use. So it's just, it's just pointless. Pointless waste. Wow. So. Yeah. Speaking of uh, stories, we can unpack that probably. <laughs> <can't really>. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, but we're getting ahead of our ourselves. So we before are. Lee, uh, so glad you're here to help us talk about story. You know, we're about midway through this third season of Fathoms, which focuses on this theme of story. But before we get into that, Creek, I need a pumpkin spice latte update. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, thank you for everyone who has uh, messaged me in some form or the other, just telling me all the different places that you uh broke out in spontaneous laughter um, <laughs> imagining me drinking a pumpkin spice latte la- la- latte latte you can't um, even say it <laughs> i can't even say it <laughs> the words um, can't cross his lips <laughs> <No>. <laughs> without making it interesting um i have yet to receive actual money towards a pumpkin spice latte i can't even say it <laughs> <laughs> Pumpkin spice latte. Uh, Lee is actually the only one that has sent me money, and it was uh, to buy something other than his pumpkin spice latte. (laughs) Lee, wait a second. The the idealist tribe. Yeah, that is the opposite of what we asked you to do. I'm a contrarian. What can I say? (laughs) What was the note you put on your Venmo? I don't remember. That was days ago. We were on January 75th. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, right? Uh, She said, for for not Starbucks, Utopians Unite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you look in the show notes of our prior uh, episode, which was the conversation on the Enneagram of Traps, Creek's Venmo is in there. If someone does want to (laughs) donate money towards his pumpkin spice latte, that's how you say it, Creek, by the way. Thank you. Thank then you. he will, we will record him actually partaking of it. But he, yeah. 
we need that. We need your support now more than ever. Cue <laughs> <laughs> Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I feel like we're on one of those like fundraiser things on like local radio stations where it's like we're gonna play a song and talk fifteen minutes about yeah, how much we will money not we stop need. talking until we meet our goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Lee, uh, thanks for indulging us in that <laughs> whatever that was. But so glad you're with us to talk about story. And we you know, we had and this also spurred on a now a really fun Marco Polo group, <laughs> which we were trying to get ready for this. So, and I'm already excited because you have some great thoughts to help us, I think, deepen our conversation on story and enhance certainly it's kind of enneagrammatic applications. So where would you like to start, Lee? Where, where should we begin this conversation? Once upon a time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Where all good stories begin. Right. <laughs> Call me um, Ishmael or you know, I, something. Right. I think where I want to start is there, is where we started. One of my teachers, Dr. David Daniels, talks about how our personalities came online, right? We were born with a temperament and then through interacting with our early caregivers and our young lives, we had hits and misses of being cared for the way that we wanted to be cared for. And our personality structure started developing as an expression of a survival instinct, right? When we were tiny baby mammals. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, that... They, you make us sound so cute when you call I us know. baby mammals. <laughs> we were little baby mammals. They get us when we're cute, where they'll like us when we're older. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> when we think about human, the human animal we're like the most helpless creature. We can't hold our own head up, right? We depend on a caregiver for everything for the first while. And we're also nonverbal. <laughs> so we're not having language that adult people understand. Yeah. That personality starts building up to protect us. We cry, we get attention, we get taken care of, or we don't. And it's pretty complicated and nuanced because we come in with a temperament that's wanting to be met a certain way. And our caregivers don't necessarily know how to do that or have the capacity to do it. Yeah. And so we start very early on, our brain starts making patterns. One of our mutual teachers, Mario Sakura, talks about how the brain is a, a pattern-finding machine yeah. trying to sort of make its efficiency, make it itself as efficient as it can be because it knows it's really energy expensive, right? Mm. So we start seeing patterns and making meaning with it, thinking that we, oh, that worked, right? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I got what I wanted, so this must be how you do it, right? And then we carry that on from seconds after birth into, you know, adulthood, believing the, the story that we've told ourselves about how we have to survive. And I think that the Enneagram is a beautiful, really elegant tool that can point us to noticing that. So that's yeah. how I'd like to start. That's good. And for, for those listeners who may be a little bit newer to Fathoms, Lee, uh, would you mind sharing your type? Oh, sure. Um, I, I lead with type one. Okay. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. <Yep. laughs> Very succinct and clear. Um, <laughs> I think it's really 
important to first highlight the aspect that the Enneagram is a tool. It's something to be used to increase efficiency in creating more adaptive, beneficial patterns and behaviors. It's not something that you have to be wearing constantly. It's something that you use strategically in order to confront the stories that are harmful or or otherwise. So I really agree with how you're framing that up because if there was if there ever became a need for me to always label every tree or every thing I walked by, I would be exerting so much energy. I would not be able to keep moving forward. Like there's mm-hmm. something valuable, very very beneficial for the fact that my brain has already categorized that. But in the same way, that is also how I don't get to stop and enjoy smell the roses, literally. Mm-hmm. I won't ever be able to do that. I won't ever be able to have a deeply meaning, ex- meaningful experience if I only live from that categorization, you know, that is automatically running in the back of my mind. This is, I th- I'm assuming this is where we're headed when it comes to how the Enneagram can at least show us the way that we've become patterned so that we can um, sort of start to wake up to this specific pattern mm-hmm. and hold it more loosely. I think that's beautiful. And I think that part of where I'm going with this is including everything, right? I think there's a real wisdom to the brain that it does make these patterns, right? Mm-hmm. We sure. don't have to relearn how to tie our shoes every day. We don't have to relearn how to drive the car every time we get into it, right? We'd never get anything done. The trouble is that when we bring that same habituated patterning to our choices in how we engage our thoughts and our feelings and our actions, then we fall asleep, right? Mm -hmm. And the Enneagram shows us the nine ways that we are most prone to do that where we can notice and then make a more conscious decision on how we're going to respond instead of react mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. of the time, totally. right? Yeah, <laughs> um, right. totally, totally. And I see the, the fiction, the nonfiction piece sort of in the middle of that is memoir, right? Oh, interesting. Mm. There's complete fiction that has its place, right? It can be enjoyable, but it's not true, Right. Mm. It might be based in truth, but it's not true. And memoir is our perception of the truth, and nonfiction is the truth. And running on automatic, we're going to sort of swing between those things unconsciously. (laughs) But with, with the Enneagram and looking at like our three centers of intelligence, right? Learning how to engage in conversation with those centers and practicing that, it gives us the choice to see what's fiction, what's memoir, and what's nonfiction. Mm, that's really great. That just opened my brain a little bit. I would, I would love to each one of us talk about how, how those three aspects, fiction, memoir, and nonfiction, are useful and harmful in like uh-huh. our own. Can you give some examples of how those concepts kind of overlay with your life in general? Well, I can start since I'm the one that brought the topic and you guys can think <laughs> about you. it. <laughs> I'll lay down some cover. Um, great. Great, great, great. <laughs> in my own experience, I tend to privilege memoir as thinking it's truth. How I recollect things I believe is true. And my 
my type structure supports that. I'm right about it, right? If I don't get curious about somebody else's position or they don't volunteer it, then I just roll along thinking that my version of reality is true. Mm. Sometimes it is. Most of the time it's not. And it's almost never the whole story, mm. right? It's my limited lens of perception. So noticing that there's more characters in the story than just myself, and there's more going on with them consciously and unconsciously, <laughs> mm. that the only way I could get the whole story would be to have them do all of their inner work and come back to me and report back on what happened. <laughs> and still then, you know, it would be a, a version of it. But right. it's noticing how frequently I privilege my way being the right story. I've got the facts mm. and I don't. Yeah, as a type three, you know, this is it, interesting kind of territory <laughs> to enter. Mm. Uh, fiction, nonfiction, memoir. I, I think given our, the three's tendency towards delusions of grandeur, right? There's, there's a lot of um, potential fictionalizing <laughs> of of the story of the three, often in heroic or successful or outstanding ways, right? That, mm -hmm. that whole kind of push to strive to be outstanding. I think uh, one of a, a good key lesson for my life, and I would imagine the lives of many threes, is the difference between great fiction and bad fiction, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. bad fiction is, it's, predictable it's simplistic you know it's it's cheap it's you know i think about when i read books to my kids the the books that are simply a licensed kind of retread of like a star wars movie <laughs> right mm. with images like it, it's really bad fiction because all they're doing is giving this really simple summary of a much bigger and wider story right whereas great fiction I think tells us things that are true and good and beautiful in ways that are far more profound maybe than we would otherwise be able to receive. So I think, I think it was Dickinson, Emily Dickinson who said, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Right. I think, mm -hmm. I think there's something there. Right. Yeah. And we can think about the most compelling stories that have captivated us, even as kids or as adults, whether it's movies or books or, TV series and uh, something in their greatness is due to the fact that it was telling something profoundly true or and good and beautiful or, or all the above, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a good life lesson for me has is to pursue <laughs> stories that are better than maybe the cheap stories that my threeness can easily conjure, right? Mm -hmm. Where I'm suddenly succeeding or at the top of the mountain in some way, <laughs> shape or form. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's a tired story for a three, right? And yeah, so I, I think that there's something else probably deeper there that helps us maybe better understand and demarcate the differences between fiction, memoir, and nonfiction, because <laughs> those lines can get kind of blurry for the three, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. yeah, I'm hearing a a delineation drew between sort of pulp fiction and literature. Yeah, sure. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to frame it for sure. 
I was just having this conversation with my housemate last night. Um, <laughs> I don't remember how it came up, but we were talking about ghosts and like, as one why, does, yes, yeah. Do you believe in them or not? And why? What what makes this thing continue to exist when there's not really phenomenal proof that they do? But he was taught. We were talking about how oftentimes like when he's trying to meditate or get into a more relaxed space like if he has if his face and jaws really tight he'll imagine his face melting and the use of imagination elicits a physical response mm. his 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 face is not actually melting right this is fiction good to know <laughs> yes. I'm, yes. I'm glad to hear that yeah very relieved thank you uh, yes but but along those lines, like what there are, there's so many fictitious things that we engage in in our imagination and our fantasies. I'm as a, a four, especially like where where I imagine where I imagine my, more of my life than I actually live. It is, and I think you can say this about all all the types. I think it it can be helpful in imagining what could be, but when it starts to replace what you're actually doing, then that's and that's a whole different ball game. So I think fiction is a tricky one in that you have to know that you're dealing with fiction in order to be able to use it correctly. And I, I think that that's the ball game, right? Because mm -hmm. using the Enneagram to, to talk through it, we are confronted with a stimulus and we are habituated to have a reaction to that in a certain way. And part of what happens is our mental center, whatever type we are, starts telling a story about what's happening that mm. then we respond to with either an emotion, a thought, or an action, mm -hmm. right? Or some of all of the above, right? Yeah. But we give the story that we tell the benefit of the doubt that it's true <laughs> when mm. really our type patterns condition us to see it through a certain lens and that flavors what the reality is right mm -hmm. and we're all striving to feel a certain way in our nervous system it is like a primal basic feeling that we are shooting for all the time mm -hmm. and that's how we feel safe that's how we that's how we survived <laughs> and so it's not a conscious choice we're making it's a somatic body sensation feeling that we're going for. <laughs> yeah. And story doesn't really have a place there. We could go deep dive on body sensations and body memory and how all that houses and lives and the reality of it. And that's more nonfiction territory. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. One other thing to say about that is I think one of the hallmarks of knowing that you're in a nonfiction place is, is presence right mm. in the right now this is what is happening and that presence begins in the body center that's the only place you can be present right that's what russ hudson says mm -hmm. which yeah. i think he's getting from someone else but you're present in your body right now that's what's happening and the sensations that you're having are happening for a reason it's your body communicating something mm. for myself i'll example as a one a lot of times what my body is communicating causes anger which causes me to take action. And the story I tell is I have to fix this. But the truth is, frequently, it's not mine to fix. I'm meddling 
but I'm believing the fiction that I have to do it and I'm going to do it right. And they want me to do it. And in there, there's a miss. I wonder if we could say that something becomes fiction after we grow out of the need for it. Yeah, that's good. Hmm. Does that make sense? Creek, you seem to get on board with that. (laughs) Uh, It's just, it's just the idea that I use this phrase a lot. I feel like these days, but um, if all you have is a hammer, all you're going to see are nails, Mm -hmm. you know, like, but the world is not full of nails. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's full of plenty of other things to hit and, and uh, not even hit, but just like, I don't know whatever this analogy means, but, uh, you know, like, but if all I have, if I don't wake up to the fact that I, I have been trying to force a hammer in the world when I, when I have all these other tools, then I won't see there's more than nails. Mm-hmm. But that means waking up to the fiction I've been believing, which is what we're talking about. The, the, uh, the stories that we have to keep believing in order to be okay. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to be okay anymore like I once did growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think too there's there's a piece about including that is really important. Like the former fiction served a really important intelligent purpose, right? Look, you survived. We're here having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. But maybe it's not the best story to carry forward. We don't need to fix the past or not mm-hmm. do it that way again. It's just bringing that quality of awareness to what we're doing. Yeah, that maybe the stories that have helped us survive are not necessarily the same stories that are going to help us Bingo. thrive, right? Or right. So if I could, then this fiction of me, which sounds so sad, and uh, I feel... Hmm. <laughs> That's a book I'd read. By uh, yeah. Way. yeah. That'd be a book I write. <laughs> <laughs> the fiction of me by <laughs> Abram. In a, in a sense, it's like just mm. describing nineness, the fiction of me, the, you know, mm. the, the empty space... That is me. I think for me, it entails kind of this, if I remember right, it's in one of the Risa Hudson books, but it's, there's kind of a a social role that everybody, that every type plays. And for the nine, it's this nobody special role. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not that big of a deal. So anytime there's, there's a, a need for somebody else to be called into something, it's not going to be me. I can always, here's my chair. You know, I, I don't need it. It's it's yours. Because there's no level of... I don't allow for myself to have any level of importance or significance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that would be primarily, at least for the nine, is however you do that in your life based on your story, your unique story. That's the, the nine fiction, I think. Like The thing about that, though, is that relationships require me to have responsibility to show up. So I think, at least for me, that's where I've found out that my fiction, the the, the benefit of fiction, but then it, how it gets in the way, is when um, I got to show up for other people. I can go ahead and like not show up for myself. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I can do that all day long. I mean, it, it starts to wear on me, but people are asking of me, you know, and I can show up or not, but then I won't be able to maintain relationships basically healthy ones so that's i think where the fiction starts to break down you know and kind of invites me into something more as i've allowed myself to be in more and more relationships especially that's what that's required of me is saying yes to responsibility and and engaging it from fiction the spectrum from fiction to non-fiction is is a slowly expanding viewpoint fiction seems very insular very 
it's like an internal cycle. The story informs the action. There it is. That's the word that I'm looking for. <laughs> um, yes, that thing. Uh, <laughs> circle thingy. The circle thing that yeah. goes around. Your hand motions will translate continuously well to a podcast. So keep going. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this 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 expanding this expanding story narrative really is is going from maybe what your past is informing you stuck in this loop of story and then your memoir is more like what is how is that fiction informing your memoir what is happening right now your identities in some ways maybe that includes your your shoulds or like i should be more accomplished or i should be this or i should be that and then nonfiction is expanding even further and getting more of that objective point of view um but until that that full spectrum is opened up and you can see where those are useful, where they're harmful. I, I don't, I don't see how you can actually get to a non fictitious point of view without first confronting those first two. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of spitballing here. Is that, that rings true to me. And I think that, uh, enneagrammatically the, the memoir piece is where the self observation comes in. Right. It's like I'm beginning to see my personality. Right. Mm. I'm beginning to recognize when it's happening. And then, you know, developing that inner observer to to make inquiry of do I need to do it this way? Is it, you know, mm. it's that again, it's that moment of presence of realizing how am I going to respond to this situation? Or am I going to react to it? <laughs> right. Mm. In my habituated pattern. Right. And I think part of this memoir is to recognize that none of those tendencies actually ever disappear. They don't entirely go away. It's mm-hmm. just your relationship with them changes. Yeah. Totally. And including them both because mm-hmm. we all want to avoid something, right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to see it in ourselves, but it's there. And that's the dark underbelly of the Enneagram past the positive meme culture is it's actually there to show you what you don't want to see. And to show you how you see what you do want to see, which determines what you miss. Yeah. Right, right. And I'm also thinking then of a quote by Maya Angelou, uh, Angelou, who says that there's no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. Mm. And to me, that is, you could probably see that in a hand a couple of different ways. But I think of like, if you're feeling some level of like, say, let's say a cocoon that you've, this is the story you've told and you're starting to feel like you're, you don't really fit in this thing anymore. You know, you've tried this pattern over and 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 you're just feeling very small. I think what's calling you outside of that is this untold story, the rest of your potential that you have yet to tap into. And I think that is also part of our memoir that we're, that we're writing that can kind of only really be written after we start to see the fiction, the the reality of the, the fiction, the illusion that we've mm. believed for so long. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think that that idea of the untold story, that's all of us are carrying those in our bodies, right? Mm. We're, we're carrying emotions that we haven't metabolized. Right. And Abram, your point about the cocoon, <laughs> what immediately came to my mind was what happens between caterpillar and butterfly mm-hmm. is a real hot mess of, <laughs> of complete right. liquefaction before it comes out yeah. another thing. Sure. Yep. It makes me think of another quote 
actually, from Tara Brock. If you find yourself suffering, you can be sure that you have run up against the internal boundary of your smaller self. Mm-hmm. This has been an interesting conversation in ways that I will probably continue to <laughs> reflect on and consider, mm-hmm. you know, for a while here uh, beyond our recording for sure. Because I do think, you know, there, there seems to be really, for what I shared with regarding fiction, that there's really bad fiction and then there's really beautiful, good fiction. I think the same can be true for memoir and nonfiction. So Mm -hmm. I do Mm -hmm. think it's not so much that there's this simplistic formula, right? To go from Mm -hmm. the fiction of your type to the nonfiction Mm -hmm. of yourself. I think that would be a too simplistic take. But I do Mm -hmm. think that there is generally a, a progression of growth and development when someone realizes that the stories that they've been living are maybe a little incomplete. There's some untold stories, right, Abram? Um, there's some probably deeper, more beautiful, good and true stories to be to be lived out. And, and in so doing, it, it allows for good memoir, which is really good reflection upon one's life, right? And one's place in it. And mm-hmm. uh, which probably leads to some really good nonfiction. Totally. Yeah. And so that's fascinating to me. So Lee, would you like to now talk about maybe specifically how this could be played out maybe with the nine types? Sure. Thanks, Drew. Looking at how in nine different ways we're striving to feel a certain way. Sorry. (laughs) That is spiritual work, Abram. (laughs) Look at me. Get so tight. Okay. (laughs) Transmitting nine, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) All right. Take two. So the Enneagram helps us see in nine different ways how we're striving to feel a certain way in our bodies, right? We're striving for certain sensations that make us feel secure and emotions that make us feel safe and thoughts that we're comfortable with, right? Mm -hmm. And so, for the one, uh, we're striving to feel perfect or right. For the two, striving to feel connected. For the three, successful. For the four, unique or special. For the five, detached. Um, The six, secure. The seven, excited, the eight, powerful or in control, and the nine, peaceful or harmonious. And when we achieve that sense, we feel safe. And so, we repeat it because it worked one time, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And with the Enneagram, we can start to see that there are other options that could feel safe too. And then we can have more stories, Different mm-hmm. stories, new genres, maybe. <clears throat> yeah, it's the idealization that creates the shadow or the avoidance. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if, in naming these idealizations, it's like perfect opportunity to find where it is that we're avoiding something in our bodies, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know, for the nine, I'm, you know, avoiding con- or some some form of disruption physically. There's some form of uh, imperfection. There's some form of, uh, you know, like the opposite. What is the opposite that is actually there when you are having to be? Because the shadow is is not nonfiction, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? The shadow is true. Mm-hmm. I mean, the shadow is not fiction. The shadow is true. Yeah. And we don't want to see it. We cast it as fiction. It may be the truest truth. As I think through this, it, there's there's some part of it where personally when i when i have when i let go of the idea of needing to be distinct special unique 
it's it's not only a there's a relief in that I don't have to be that, and then there's a rising of I am, I am already that. I see it. I see it in new ways in other places, mm-hmm. in all the places totally. that I'm not looking. When I let go of it, it makes room for that to actually right. show itself to to surface. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's the inclusion, right? Mm-hmm. right? You're including the unique and the mundane, and only through mm-hmm. including the mundane can you see what's truly unique. Yeah. Right. right. And that's why Russ would say the virtues are not always present. They're actually, they come about in your relaxing. Right. And my teacher, Marion Gilbert, talks about the unpopular proposition of the radical inclusion of everything. Mm-hmm. Right. It's letting both things be mm-hmm. the shadow right. and what we choose to see. We don't right. fix our personality, we need it. Right. Mm-hmm. But we yeah. contort its expression because of the fictions we tell ourselves. Yeah. And when we let the truth come through, the fiction and the memoir and the nonfiction can all be included as part of who we are. Right, right. R- Roar says that we're not in the business of killing our demons or saying killing off our ego. We're in the business of exposing it, shining a light on it for what it is. And when you can see it, you see that it's just a part of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That letting go is an exhale, and it's really scary to exhale. There's two different movements, the exhale and the inhale, and both are equally scary for different reasons, right? The exhale mm-hmm. is, what if there's not another breath coming in? And the inhale is, what if I'm breathing in something that doesn't work, that is harmful to me? And I'm having several conversations with some people right now that are having a really hard time letting go of some things that were integral in their life and how they thought life worked. And that, that is, it's such a huge, huge step to let go and allow that lack of security, really, what you're used to, even if it's harmful, you still want to, you want to be where it's comfortable. But in that letting go, like you said, Abram, you're, we're making space for that new inhale and it, you have to kind of trust that it's going to be there. There is no light on the next step. You just kind of have to go for it. Yeah, that that holding your breath feels safe as you jump into the water. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, a healthy, regulated nervous system actually includes not being in too high or too low. It's a mixture mm-hmm. of both, which includes the breath in and the breath out. So actually, living in flow, not getting stuck in your story is the breathing in, breathing out. It's the both and. It's both and. And our our bodies do the breathing for us. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Our breath breathes us, we don't breathe it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, we we try to control it and that has Mm -hmm. natural consequences as well, (laughs) right? But go ahead. it's, It's also interesting to think I think we, we think of oxygen is good, carbon dioxide is bad, when there's actually a lot of great things that happen with carbon dioxide. Well, one of the things that carbon dioxide does is feed the trees that feed us. So, But there are also individual personal body stuffs that happen <laughs> with carbon dioxide. <laughs> well, that, that carbon dioxide actually reminds me of what does a good memoir do? It names your fictional part of your story. 
that's what is enticing to people. Like, yeah. Oh, you too? Yeah. That's what wakes me up. Like yeah. a good memoir will help me name my story. That's what good songwriting does. What you know? Yeah. Like, oh, you feel something too, and I'm not the only one. Now I can become something more than that. You know, I don't have to only be trapped in that story because I'm not the only one. And much like Enneagram work and memoir, the author's vulnerability invites more vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. So when I see, when I am in community with you doing Enneagram work. There's a positive, I'm going to one out, a positive peer pressure, right, <laughs> to do the work. Mm. It's an invitation to meet that same work. Uh, Lee, you mentioned something that was really helpful in kind of starting to name our relationship with our stories, a little, a little exercise perhaps. Could you share that with us real quick? Yeah, sure. So I'll invite you to bring some curiosity and... Take a look at how something feels in your body uh, with your Enneagram idealization. So just make yourself comfortable. Stand up if you can uh, with your feet a little wider than hip distance apart and relax your system. You can close your eyes if you want or keep them open. Take a couple of breaths just to sort of land in your body. And then I'm going to use the example of a one, my own type, but you'll use the idealization that I said earlier to explore your own type. And then just say out loud, I am perfect. I am good. And take a couple of breaths and see how that feels in your body. For me, it feels like I stand a little bit taller. I feel like my posture's a little straighter and it feels feels nice in my body. Uh, Then you take another couple of breaths, and this time say, I have to be perfect, or whatever your idealization is. And for me, my body becomes much more rigid. It's like I've braced myself against mistakes, and there's a real constriction in my body. And sort of playing with that and noticing how the words that we use and the expectations we have for ourselves land in our physical systems, that can give us a clue as to part of why we try to avoid feeling like that, because it doesn't feel good. (laughs) That's good. Thank you, Lee. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, just listeners, just take a word that you relate to and do that exercise and take an impression of what is it that you're... What is, how is your body responding to that? How does that make you feel? And then look for that as you're going, out, going throughout your day. I, I know that's been helpful in my personal life is to recognize certain body postures and states to help trigger me in a good way of like, oh, I need to attend to something because my body is telling me something that I'm, I'm constricting or I'm trying or I, I have to be or something like that. I'll say, I'll say I think checking in with your body on some consistent frequency uh, is what helps you tap a little bit deeper than your your fiction, mm-hmm. the story that you're believing. It helps you begin to say yes to writing this nonfiction story, you know? Mm-hmm. And living your memoir, <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Um, living the questions, as yeah. it's been said. 
Mm. Yeah. And I think that it's important too to check in with your body, but notice also what emotions might come up or what thoughts might come up. They're they're all happening. But yeah. it's like a domino effect of what might be leading to the others. <laughs> yeah. Right? Or reinforcing yeah. the others. So letting the fiction and the nonfiction inform your memoir. There you have it. There it is. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank, thank you. you Thanks Lee. for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time.